You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same Hello and welcome to episode 321 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Matthew Block and I'm your host for today. I'm editor of the Canadian Lutheran Magazine and communications manager for the International Lutheran Council. Joining me today is your regular host, Michael Farmer from Sandy Springs, Georgia. Michael, I think you have some news to report. I do, yeah. After not teaching for several years and working in engineering, I decided that I will never be a very good engineering draftsman. And so I've accepted a position at a, a local classical high school. It's part of my contract to not say what the name of the school is. I guess they don't want to be associated with my public persona, but uh, I'll start there in the fall. I'm teaching Western Civ. So I've been furiously reading ancient Greek historians, which I've never really spent much time with. Um, and uh uh, yeah, I, I'm almost ready to pronounce all their names, figure out where the uh, where the emphasis goes in, in those names. <laughs> well, that sounds exciting. Also with us today is David Grubbs. And I think, David, you also have some news. Uh, yeah, I do. And it's it's almost exactly like Michael's news. So I'm just going to, you know, copy and paste it. No, um, uh, we Grubbses, that is uh, Katie and I and our children, we're going to be uh, ro- relocating over the summer to Birmingham, Alabama, which is my hometown, um, in order to be closer to family and uh, available for them. Um, I will also be taking a position as an instructor uh, at a uh, classical high school um, as a humanities instructor. Um it's kind of funny how these things worked out, dear listeners. Uh, they were um, more or less independent and uh, a, a kind of a, a funny convergence of events and had nothing to do with my quality as a draftsman, um, though I figure I would I, – I, I probably don't have a future in that. Oh, no, know. you'd be much better at it than I am, David. I've seen, <laughs> I've seen the dollhouses you build. You have a sense of space that is just completely lacking in my life. <laughs> okay. Well, it sounds like uh, an interesting change for both of you guys. You know, there's nobody more excited about Grubbs taking that job than my wife, Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Uh, She just, uh, she's so excited to have Katie nearby that I can't imagine anybody in your family is more excited for you to move to Birmingham than she is. (laughs) Me, I could take it or leave it. My mom might be, (laughs) but she's not quite as uh, naturally exuberant. Sure. Um, yeah, it's going to be uh, it's going to be sad leaving HBU behind. I have um, I have excellent colleagues and uh, the best chair in the world and just fantastic uh, English majors and graduate students that I've been working with since I've been here. But you know, uh, uh, the new the new chapter begins. 
And hey, maybe you'll uh, maybe you'll get some weather that's not consistently 85 degrees or higher. You'll have, I mean, not a real winter, but you'll have something approaching a real winter. At least a real autumn. <laughs> well, this week we're talking about the 2006 movie Stranger Than Fiction, which stars Will Ferrell. If any of our listeners haven't seen the film, um, they might be surprised to hear we're talking about a film starring Will Ferrell. And I think I just want to say right off the bat, this is not your typical Will Ferrell film. I, I really despise pretty much anything else he's ever been in. Um, but this is a good movie, uh, one that I also came across when I think it was in my second year of university. And uh, it's a film that's really concerned with the literary world, with authors, with writing, with characters, literary theory, tragedy, comedy, and more. So if our listeners haven't seen the film before, don't worry, we're going to sketch out the plot a bit as we go along today, I think. But I hope that by the end you'll be inclined to add Stranger Than Fiction to your Netflix watch list. And we, we should say that we are going to spoil this movie, so if you haven't seen it, you might want to go to Netflix and watch it um, before you listen to the rest of this episode. Mm-hmm. Well, David, like a lot of movies, Stranger Than Fiction begins with narration. On its own, that's not exactly noteworthy. So what's different about this film? What makes this story about a seemingly unremarkable man, a rather boring IRS agent named Harold Crick, played by Farrell, um, what makes this film suddenly veer into the remarkable? How does the film invite us into a discussion of the nature of literature and art? Well, it begins, as many films do, with uh, shots of, of uh, characters who, who aren't speaking, who aren't um, uh, really doing anything beyond sort of going through their ordinary lives. And over the top of it, there's, um, you know, an artful and arch uh, narrator uh, sort of uh, commenting on, on each of the actions, um, helping us see how this uh, sort of methodical, meticulous, uh, compulsively numerate uh, character um, sort of measures out his day. I kept thinking of of uh, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock when he, he measures his life out in coffee spoons. Um, this, is, this is that sort of um, uh, accountancy taken to its extreme. Uh, but then at a particular point in, uh, the, the beginning of the film, uh, our, our hero, Harold Crick, the boring IRS agent, uh, begins to hear the narrator. And so that, that's the point at which, um, you are alerted to the fact that this, uh, this film is going to be taking you in a direction that, uh, isn't, isn't normal. Um, the, uh, the actor suddenly, or the uh, the the character suddenly becomes aware um, of his status as a character, um, and that there is uh, apparently some other uh, larger force at play in in his life. Um, the way that this leads to a discussion of literature and art is uh, when speaking uh, when. First, first of all, he's he, he he wants to know whether other people can hear the voice. Um, that leads to referrals to uh, 
was that a, 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 a workplace counselor? I wasn't really, I, I, I couldn't remember if there was a title for the weird hippie guy who, who hugs him and talks about trees. Yeah, I assumed he uh, was an HR person. Okay. <laughs> uh, but he is, uh, he, he recognizes him as, um, displaying, uh, signs of, uh, schizophrenia, hearing voices, um, refers him to, uh, what I assume was, uh, a, uh, a psychologist of some sort. I, I can't remember again what this character's name was, but it was played by the woman who's Edna Mode in The Incredibles. Anyway. <laughs> um, and... Well, David, that can't be true. Edna Mode is played by what, a man. No? Wait, is she, is, is she not? Edna Mode is played is she... by Brad Bird. See, I thought she was modeled on her, at least. I thought she might be modeled, too. But the actress we're talking about plays the principal in Kindergarten Cop, if we're want to go back a little. <laughs> principal in Kindergarten See, Cop? This this whole time, I thought that Edna Mode, because of her physical resemblance to that actress, was voiced by that actress. Man, you're you're upending my world, my dude. I'm sorry, yeah, it's Brad Bird. I'm, I'm almost certain. I, I didn't look it up, but I'm almost certain. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> um, which, uh, in in any event, the therapist is the one who recommends that. Uh, because the voice in his head has taken the form of a narrator, that what he ought to do is to consult um, uh, a literary scholar. Um, since his, uh, I, I suppose from her perspective, uh, since his delusion has taken a literary form, he should consult a, a person who understands literature. Um, so... That leads to his association with Dustin Hoffman's character, Professor Jules Hilbert, a literature professor who begins to analyze um, the sort of narrator that's in his that that he's hearing, and then based on that narration and based on his own character, what sort of story that he's in. So, um, yeah, and that and that really begins kind of uh, I guess what you would call the the second act of the film is this attempt to diagnose the narrative. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a strange film. I mean, the whole concept of someone being aware of of the narration of their lives is just odd. Um, what do you think of of the kind of narrator that we have here? I mean, Traditionally, we'd, we'd break them down into simple categories of, you know, third person, first person. Uh, I guess not a first person if it's going to be someone else, but is this a third person limited omniscient narrator, or, or what do you think? Well, I mean, it's, it's specifically, the movie specifically calls her third person omniscient, right? Because, uh, right. because of the importance of that line, little did he know, um, the, <clears throat> the feral character. And I'm, I want to call him Francis Crick. Uh, for some reason, <laughs> but uh, well, all, no, all of the names DNA are, here. <laughs> I was going to say all of the names though are taken from from famous mathematicians and scientists. Oh, in that's this interesting. Movie, which, so it, it is. Yeah. I'm, I'm supposed it to think of Francis Crick. Crick. Yeah. Exactly. But he, the reason he goes to um, 
to a doctor to begin with is because the little did he know says to him that this narrator knows something that he doesn't know, that it's not just his voice. It's a separate person who knows everything. So yeah, it's, it's third person omniscient, although it, um, he calls it omniscient. Really. It's, if I were reading the novel, I would call it limited because it only follows him. Um, it doesn't, we don't really get anybody else's point of view. Mm -hmm. I, I would say it's limited as well. Um, but I, I mean, the omniscience seems to play into the fact that the narrator seems to know more about what's going on than the, than the, the viewpoint character does through his perspective. Um, so in that sense, um, since omniscience, um, though typically when we lit folk refer to a third person narrator as omniscient, we're referring to the way that the, na that narrator gives us access to the thoughts and feelings of other characters, not just the viewpoint character. Right. Um, right. So there's there's some tweaking of the terminology at le at the very least. You know, one mm -hmm. interesting thing they could have done with the movie is to to make it un un unknownst to us until the end that uh, the Maggie Gyllenhaal character has also heard this narrator, and that that in fact the book she's writing really is third person omniscient. It would have made it a different movie. I'm not sure it would have made it a better one. Mm -hmm. What I would point out about the narrator is the narrator is what clues us in to the fact that this is not going to be a rather uh, stereotypical story about a button-down guy who learns to love. You know, the, the story of Harold Crick has been told many, many times in many novels and many movies, and it's, it's the metafictional conceit of this movie, the narrator that he can hear, that makes the movie more interesting than it would have been if we were just reading that novel. We're told um, toward the end of the movie that this is her masterpiece and it's one of the greatest novels ever written. It, it, it's hard for me to see evidence of that in the story that's being told unless there's that metafictional element. Um, it, it seems like a pretty uh, pretty standard story to me. and It's the metafiction that makes it interesting. And it seems to me that that's what she's going to do at the end. Is she's going to go back in and add this metafictional element that wasn't there in the initial draft. Well, we, we've kind of touched on this. I mean, the, the narrator, the crisis for the narrator that's going on, because, of course, she is a character in the film as well, played by Emma Thompson. And uh, her problem is that she has writer's block. She's writing this novel, but she can't seem to figure out a way to end it appropriately. So to get the job done, the publisher sends Penny Asher, played by Queen Latifah, to help uh, Kay or Karen Eiffel finish the book. And I think that it's fair to say that the two represent somewhat different understandings of the origin of literary inspiration. Um, so, Michael, how would you say each of them approach the art of writing? And how do their different approaches tie into the historic understandings of the nature of literary inspiration? Yeah, so, I mean, you've got, you've got uh, Eiffel, who I think pretty clearly sees this as some sort of mystical, artistic vocation, right? She has to... She has to wait until she's inspired and doing stuff to make herself inspired doesn't work, right? So she wants to kill Harold Crick, not Francis Crick. She wants to kill him. And so she does all this research on interesting ways to die, right? So she thinks about throwing herself off a building and she thinks about driving her car over the side of a bridge and she goes to 
<laughs> and I, one of the movie's funnier scenes, I think, she goes to a hospital and tries to figure out what's killing people and what it would be like to die of those things. But when the answer finally comes to her, it comes to her out of the blue with no kind of preparation. And she makes a big deal about that because really what she believes is that artistic inspiration uh, is a mystical thing that kind of comes on you as opposed to being something you work for. It's an art. It's not a craft. It's something more akin to religion than to carpentry. Um, and in that sense, she, she kind of squares with the vision of, uh, of artistic inspiration that you get critiqued in um, a few of the, a few of Plato's dialogues, most particularly the Ion, which we did an episode on uh, many years ago. I don't remember exactly when, but our listeners can go hunt that down if they're interested in hearing us talk about the Ion directly. But Plato's criticizing that view. Or, I mean, he believes it, but he thinks that's what makes poets not worth listening to, essentially. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Penny Escher comes from the publisher, and her goal is not so much to, you know, reach out into the ether and pluck out her inspiration. It's to get her to finish the darn book. And so she has this this much more, um, oh, uh, craftsman's vision of, uh, of, of what it means to write a novel. She doesn't write the novel herself, but somehow the exercises that she makes these authors do gets them to finish their novel. And, and the implication um, at the beginning is that she's been sent to do this many, many times, and she's very good at it. And we see a little bit of what she does, but not that much, because, of course, this is not a job that actually exists. But um, in, in that sense, she's probably closer to the Aristotelian view. Aristotle really does present this as a, as a kind of craft, a science, among other sciences. You say things in a particular way to get a particular reaction, and you set up your plots in a particular way. There, there's none of this kind of hoity-toity inspiration stuff. It's, it's much more about, um, it's much more like building a table than like having a religious ecstasy. So... Um, the movie does not focus on the tension between them as much as it does on some of the other themes of the movie, but I think that's definitely part of the background here. And I, I also think it's fairly clear that the movie wants you to sympathize with Eiffel and not with Penny. That, um, that this movie's vision of, uh, of creation is much closer to that mystical vision. I mean, given the fact that it's a mystical movie, right? Like somehow either she is making these things happen or she's somehow intimately involved intimately although unconsciously involved with Harold's actual life whether she's having some sort of vision that allows her to write down what's going to happen or whether she's making it happen I think is not entirely clear probably closer to the latter but but certainly there's something more here than just writing a good novel right like there's there's some there's some way in which she is mystically touching the very fabric of reality. And so I, I think we're supposed to see her uh, position as the, the truer one. And and even ethically, I think you're supposed to see that because at the end, she agonizes over whether she should kill Harold. Uh, whereas the, it's, as I, I just, I'm just going to call her Queen Latifah. It's Penny, Penny, Queen Latifah uh, says, you know, just finish the novel, do what you got to do. You know, she doesn't have the kind of ethical uh, internal debate that uh, Eiffel has. So yeah, mm. it, it's a it's a, it's an interesting tension. Yeah, and I, I kind of like that it just ties into this. What is you know a very old question? Where does where does art come from? Is it is it all techne? Is it all skill? Or is it this inspiration kind of thing? And that's really a question that goes all the way back to to Plato and Aristotle, um, as you say. I think uh, 
David's already mentioned this a little bit, um, where he's talking about um, Harold learns that his death is imminent from this narrator. Um, she's she's planning his death. She she hasn't quite figured out what she's going to do exactly, but it's going to come to her, and it does. But uh, once Harold learns that the narrator uh, from the narrator that his death is imminent, and he doesn't believe he's crazy, he does of course go to this Jules Hilbert character, and Hilbert says that really the most important thing for them to determine is whether he's in a tragedy or a comedy. So David, how does he differentiate between these two different genres? Do you like his definitions? And do you think this film, uh, this film really falls into either of those categories? Well, the thing that uh, uh, Professor Hilbert throws out, you know, which, which you know, Dustin Hoffman and Tweed, um, the, the distinction that he throws out between tragedy and comedy is, is the, the, the common joke that you hear about uh, Shakespearean plays, that at the end of the tragedies, um, our hero is dead, and at the end of a comedy, our hero is married. Um, though if it's a it's a re- if it's a really good Shakespearean tragedy and or comedy, everyone's dead or everyone's married. Um, that that captures um, that captures some of the distinction, um, though the the classical distinction between the two has to do more with uh, kind of the the trajectory of of characters um the, the sort of the, the classical definitions uh discussions of tragedy you would find um in aristotle's poetics um you know has to do with a a figure of of high estate and high position a a person who is both noble in terms of status but also noble in terms of of character um who uh has a a tragic fall in in fortune, which um, in Aristotle's opinion, the best ones that tragic fall of fortune has some kind of causal connection uh, to the hero's own choices. But um, as the Euripides play will make clear, that's that's not always necessary. <laughs> um, so the fall of the the fall of the of those of high estate. Um, I like the way uh, for for comedy. I like to bring up the knight from uh, the Canterbury Tales. Um, you see, there's a, a character uh, called the character of the monk in the Canterbury Tales. Tells a long uh, his tale is is just this long extended series of short tragic sketches, and eventually the knight interrupts the monk and says, um, "Could you please stop? You're depressing all of us." <laughs> With these stories of of people in, in in high position falling through terms of fortune into destruction, could you instead tell the story of someone who is in low low estate becoming fortunate and rising? All right. So that's that's kind of more the the classical arc of the comedy. So uh, the fall of the one of high estate or the rise of the one of low estate. Um, but for Harold Crick to call I mean, just because he dies at the end, um, in order for it to be properly tragic, he has to be endowed with nobility in term in Aristotle's terms. Because otherwise, it's just um, if if Harold Crick, at the, who's described in the very first moments of the movie, if Harold Crick dies hit by a bus at the beginning. 
that's not tragic. That's just someone with kind of a mundane and sad life getting hit by a bus. Um, but I would argue that over the course of the film, um, it increasingly becomes possible of tragedy um, as through uh, through the course of the of the story, through this um, building of this of relationships, through the, the way that the, his life has been disrupted, and he is beginning to to grow and to demonstrate um, capacities of character that we had not previously seen. Um, that that death would be tragic, um, in 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 the sense of 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 affecting of someone who has much to lose being about to lose it. So uh, yeah, I, th- I think eventually um, the the application of tragedy to it um, it works, but it's something that has to grow towards becoming tragic. If the, if that makes sense. Does well, that I think, make sense? <laughs> I, I kind of get what you're saying there. I mean, if the scene started with, you know, this character who's very bland, very unimportant, and very, frankly, boring, he's not living much of a life. If he suddenly dies, the audience isn't going to really care. But as you invest all of this time and see him growing and, as you say, rising, then there's the potential for an actual fall where his death would matter. Um, Michael, do you have any any thoughts on on tragedy and comedy in this film? Yeah, tragedy and comedy in the sense David is talking about can't really exist without an aristocracy. Um, so I mean, if you look at mm-hmm. all the tragedies, it's the kings and the and the nobles who are falling. And and Aristotle says directly that you you you, you really can't. Uh, it wouldn't make any sense to have a tragedy happen to a common person. And even in even in Shakespeare. Uh, the tragedies are are the falls of of monarchy and nobility. I mean that that's that that's who that's who those those plays are about. Um, Harold Crick is kind of a nobody, um, and and you can care about him, but I, I still don't think you have something that Aristotle would recognize as either a tragedy or a comedy. I should say the comedy um, in in Aristophanes at least comes from. Um, comes from people kind of outshining their social station. And I cannot remember the name of the play that I'm thinking of, but there's one where a sausage seller becomes the emperor and the jokes on him, you know, he's this boob who's now in charge of the entire Roman empire. Uh, but also the jokes on the Roman empire for allowing it to happen. So you have these really rigid class hierarchies that we just don't have in this country and so it it makes it difficult to to apply aristotelian or even shakespearean standards to a movie like this because there are no no, there are no nobles here and so what you have to do instead is to say there's a kind of hippie nobility in this movie where um harold crick is not living a real life the person who's living, living a real life is the maggie gyllenhaal character the um the manic pixie dream girl and so it's a comedy in the sense that he sheds his his commoner clothes right his his suit and tie that mark him as this stiff and he he ascends into the the sphere of people who are authentic who who really live um and and so that's the that's the comedy of this film mm-hmm. but it's a it's a completely I mean, different table of values than anyone that either shakespeare or aristotle would recognize, I think. No, I think you're right. And I mean, it, it speaks to the 
well, kind of the difficulty of, of Professor Hilbert's distinction. I mean, he's quoting Italo Calvino specifically, where he says, you know, you know, the ultimate meaning to all, which all stories refer have two faces: the continuity of life or the inevitability of death. Um, but real life, <laughs> real life isn't always able to be fit into into little boxes like this, right. these genres, and also contemporary fiction doesn't. Uh, attempt to, to form itself directly into these two boxes. And yet, this film intentionally is playing with the genre, so it's worth talking about them. I mean, obviously, we do have, at the end of this movie, the, the if you're, if you're going to get hitched, I mean, we, we've got the closest thing to that with, uh, with Crick and, and the baker in, in love together at the end of this film. So in that sense, maybe we could call it a comedy and we certainly had uh, the rise, which which David had referred to. So we've got this character, kind of of low import, um, rising up to this life of the the manic pixie dream girl, as you say. So, yeah. And you know what I what what I like about it is that, well, it's not as just a straight tragedy or a straight comedy. I, that's kind of what I like. I mean, the film is surprisingly bleak in in a lot of ways. It's a man contemplating his own inevitable death. And I mean, yes, there's a lot of fun metaphysical things going on there, but it's a man who's who's facing death and, and trying to, to deal with it. And uh, while we end up with a happily ever after, I think the strength of this film comes from its, its uh, willingness to treat the tragedy of life also seriously and honestly. Um, I don't know. I mean, you, there's, there's no real satisfying happily ever after in some ways unless death and suffering are, are treated honestly. That's just maybe my thoughts. Mm -hmm. No, I I agree with you. The movie's quite bleak. I mean, it's funny and there's some heartwarming parts to it, but it's, it's a, it's a bleak movie. It's bleak, but I think something that, something that it does that, um, I mean, other movies that may be kind of tonally adjacent, uh, is that the Harold Crick character has not, he hasn't got an ounce of cynicism in him he's he is played as completely earnest like many will ferrell characters but not necessarily for laughs he's earnest without having any kind of hope so he's not cynical but he's not optimistic either he's just kind of there Mm -hmm. yeah i mean there's a way in which the i mean the the function of cynicism or cynical humor for many of us is to kind of um, blunt uh, blunt pain to a certain extent um, by seeing something darkly comic um, in the events. Uh, but that's not something of which he's capable. And so, you know, little things that, that someone else might potentially laugh off, he can't. He just sort of takes the full force of it. Um, and sort of stares at the world with big puppy eyes and wonders, you know, why. Mm-hmm. Which is another connection what? between him and the Gyllenhaal character, because she also, she's not cynical. It seems like she would be, but she's yeah. not. She's very earnest. It's just that the commitments she has are very different from the commitments he has. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, when you think Will Ferrell, most people probably think the movie Elf. And the movie Elf is a, is a, is a 
um, is a conflict between someone who has no cynicism at all and a world around him that is incredibly cynical, including including his love interest. Right? He he's kind of the manic pixie dream boy in that movie and teaches <laughs> teaches her how to love or whatever. Yeah. That's not what this is. Like like the Maggie Gyllenhaal character is not mean, is not cynical. She's very very open, and she's she's you know open about why she's not she's only paying seventy eight percent of her taxes. You know she's not trying to hide. She's not trying to make fun of anybody. She's she, she has really no illusions about what she is or what she wants to do. Um, and even seems to realize that she's going to go to jail for it. Uh, so, I mean, that part is interesting. Usually with the manic pixie dream girl type, what you get is a guy who's super cynical and suicidal even, and he runs into her and she changes his life. Like in the movie. Uh, oh, what's that terrible movie? Uh, Garden State. Or the the marginally less terrible movie Elizabeth Town, which is the same movie but it has Kirsten Dunst, so it's a little better. Um, the, like those movies are guys who have kind of had it with the world. He hasn't ha- Will, the Will Ferrell character here hasn't had it with the world. He he basically has no connection to the world whatsoever. He's just a cog in the IRS's machine. Hmm. And as a cog, I mean, that, that brings up the idea of what agency he really has at the beginning of the film. And agency is something that we see discussed, I think, in this film quite a bit. The central conceit of the film is the protagonist who's aware that he's part of this story or, or becomes aware that he's part of this story someone else is telling. So we've got the themes here of destiny and freedom brought up. So, Michael, what does this film have to say about fate and what does it say about free will? All right. I don't know how much I'm going to have to say about this, um, but I'll I'll give it a shot. Uh, the free will seems to almost entirely belong to the uh, to the Emma Thompson character, to the author. Uh, she has this decision to make whether she's going to tank her novel by saving Harold Crick's life or whether she's going to write the best novel she can and it'll end up killing this person. And we'll, I know we'll talk more about the ethics of that decision here in a few minutes, so I won't dwell on it too much. It's very clearly stated that um, Crick himself does not have free will, that the, the life he's living is the life she has written for him to live, and whatever will he has exists in the spaces between what she's writing. So there's things he does that don't appear to make it into the novel, um, and yet um, all the major events of his life are outside of his control. She knows he's doing them before he does them, and she narrates their meaning, and in some cases the events themselves, before he has a chance to even process what's happening. So you you, you do, and this is part of what leads to the nihilism of the movie, because once you step away from the metaphysical conceit and you, you realize, you know, in our world there is no Emma Thompson, there's a God maybe, but there's not a... There's not a human author writing this who we can who's not aware of us and we can change her mind. Instead, we have fate or God, and and you know if if this vision of the world is true, then nothing we do has any real agency. It's 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 not coming out of anything other than uh, the kind of, the kind of strings that are being pulled for us and where where the playthings of fate. And I I really do think that's where the bleakness of this movie uh, comes from. Uh, But you must have had more in mind than that, Matthew. So what am I, what am I missing? Well, I mean, you, you're, you're really hitting some of it. I mean, from the beginning of the film, the question is, can Harold 
avoid this fate that seems to be prophesied over him. I mean, I think there's parallels here to classical Greek literature where you have these characters who they're they're fated to do whatever they're going to do. Aeneas is fated to found, you know, the Roman Empire, even when he would rather not go do that. Um, Troy is fated to fall to the Greeks. Um, Odysseus is fated to return home to Ithaca, um, although he's going to face a ton of trials on the way. So there's this this idea that there's an, in, an inevitable end that these characters have to go to. Um, but it's not a blind fate in classical it either. Um, there's the gods, and the gods give fate a face. They give the Greeks someone to protest to, to yell at, to to be angry with. Although depending on your version of the, that mythology, even the gods are subject to fate. That's a good point. That's a good point. Um, yes, with the the person. The, the, was it the sisters who were cutting the threads or... Fate, yeah, the fates. I can't remember. Yeah, I think I think they're yeah. sisters, but yeah, they're cutting threads, and the yeah. gods can't do so anything the... about it. So here right, you don't have right. that dynamic, right? You really do have the the, the Eiffel, uh, Karen Eiffel, really is in control of of his life through a mechanism mm-hmm. that's never quite explained, and the movie is much better for it not being explained. I should say. Absolutely, I think you're right. If they tried, it would it would go nowhere. But but this concept of, of being able to uh, there's, there's a scene where, you know, when he's expecting to die and he starts shouting at the sky, or he's shouting at the narrator, miraculously, but the narrator says that he's cursing the heavens in futility. And he says, I'm not cursing the heavens, I'm cursing you, you stupid voice. And, uh, <laughs> but I mean, Karen then becomes to, to Harold this kind of God character or a fate character who has control over him. But what's fascinating is that unlike a lot of these other stories, He's able to interact uh, with the the fate character. He's able to protest against her. And I mean, there's biblical precedence to this kind of thing too. You know, um, Abraham praying to God to avert the the destruction of Sodom, for example, or or Moses praying that God would relent from bringing disaster on the Israelites after he said he's going to do this thing. In the first case, he still destroys Sodom because there aren't any righteous people. In the second, he does, uh, I don't want to say change his mind, but he, he relents from bringing disaster. And we get this kind of unique encounter, I think, when Harold finally meets Kay, when he tracks her down, shows up at her, at her apartment or her house, and there's this scene in which creation comes before creator, and she's she's kind of in awe of, of looking at the, the man she has made. She says, your shoes, your eyes, your hair. And at this point, he's, he's face-to-face with his God, if you want to put it that way. And he says, now that you know I'm real, you're not going to kill me. But she's not actually sure what to do. She says she's just trying to write a story. At any event, if there is fate in this in this film, and I think there is, it is a fate which still takes account of free will. In fact, in the end, it's it's precisely Harold's decision to go to his own fate of his own free will that I think causes the author to change uh, to change her mind. Um, she says at one point that it's a, a book about a man who doesn't know who's about he's, uh, pardon me, she says it's a book about a man who doesn't know he's about to die and then dies. But if the man does know he's going to die and dies anyway, dies willingly, knowing he could stop it, then, I mean, isn't that the type of man you want to keep alive? So while there is fate in this story, it can, it's a fate that can be appealed to to change its mind. But also, 
I mean, Harold's decision to walk out at the end to the place where he knows he's going to die is his own decision. Uh, they're just interesting themes. David, do you have any thoughts about uh, free will or, or fate in this film? It reminds me very much of a discussion of free will and fate in uh, Dorothy Sayers' book, The Mind of the Maker, in which she actually uses the analogy of the relationship between an author and an author's characters uh, in a story. Though the context that she de- uh, that she develops this uh, this analogy in is not to do with uh, the inevitable the the imposition of inevitable fates on on characters by authors, but on a good author's um, reluctance to force their characters to do things that are out of keeping with the character or literally out of character. Um, so uh, she she's writing this. Uh, as, as Sayers is writing this, she's 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 speaking of in, uh, of of a way in which, in in her experience, um, her characters don't have human agency, but they do have some kind of essence that if she, as their creator, is to treat them with respect, there are things that she cannot compel them to do because they are things that character would not do. Um, they you know that a good a good artist will permit the character to in some sense be be true to themselves um ultimately the resolution of this story is actually very much like that um it seems to be in some way that that the the key to um the key to Harold Crick's story is that he had these potentialities to become the sort of person that we see him developing into there's no there's no real life changing experience he's just suddenly invited into opportunities that he hadn't necessarily had before um he's led to think about himself and about his choices in a way that he hadn't really been um it, it appears to be had not been previously self reflective um and once that once that motion begins, um, he begins to make choices, to make decisions, to act in ways that he makes clear are actually in accord with his desires and his feelings and his values. Um, so that in the end, um, inevitably he will die in the way that he dies because he's Harold Crick and Harold Crick does what he does at the end of the movie um, because of who he is. And that that also makes sense within within the film, because it seems that all of uh, Eiffel's novels are these kinds of meticulous character studies of small people acting according to their natures. Um, so so there is also a kind of inevitability, but it's not necessarily just something coming from her it's also potentially something coming from him i mean obviously he didn't i mean i don't know are we to think that he came into existence 10 years ago when she started working on the novel or you know or 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 what again we're we're getting into that area of of mechanism which the the movie the movie completely avoids um even though our 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 author does speculate about how many people she's potentially killed before 
still not sure what to do with that. Hmm. Well, I think I think that's an interesting idea. That the idea that even though characters aren't necessarily alive, they have their own paths that you you can't really force them into. And I mean that that's true if, if for anyone who's written a story, what you plan and what you end up writing is not always the same thing. Or maybe that's just me. Um, you think a story is going to go one way, but then the characters lead you in a different way when you're in the actual process of, of writing. Um, but of course, uh, the ending of Harold's story is written. So when he finally tracks down uh, Karen Eiffel, he, he learns that she's written the ending already, uh, but she hasn't typed it up. And it seems to be the typing which causes uh, reality to unfold uh, according to what she's written. Uh, so when he reads the story, he learns that he uh, that he will die in the process of saving another person. And I think the theme of sacrifice is woven into this story in, in big ways and little ways uh, throughout the film. Um, so David, in what in what other ways uh, is this sacrifice woven into the movie? Uh, in what ways does the film demonstrate this concern for saving the lives of others? Mm. Well, one uh, one is through our not manic pixie green, dream girl, as I guess we're going to have to call her, um, Maggie Gyllenhaal. Uh, and when she when we get her backstory that uh, that once she had been um, she had been uh, a law student. She uh, what was it? Oh, oh gosh, I can't remember the university. Um, it was super prestigious. That's all that remember. That's all I remember. Was it Harvard? Okay. One of them, yeah. Um, so she was in law school, and she says she barely got in. She got in because she wrote an essay about how she wanted to save the world. Um, and uh, in in law school, she discovered uh, that she was actually making the most immediate difference in people's lives around her. Um, through baking, not through law, and uh, committing herself to baking for her social circle um, led her to uh, not perform in law school as uh, in the way that she would need to to finish, so she drops out, um, but then ends up starting this bakery. Um, so, so on one hand, we have this, um, this sacrifice that her character has made that initially she had um, these big goals, but then ends up choosing a path that, um, in the eyes of many people, would look like the sacrifice of something greater for for something that is lesser, but in fact is actually um, simply a, a, a different outworking of what had been her goal the whole time. Um, and we see her interacting with the people in her bakery, um, including uh, what seems to be uh, what what what. Uh, is is pretty clearly um, a mentally ill homeless man um, who is who is pretty constantly there. Um, uh, the allusion is made to the fact that she is frequently giving away food, but then not not claiming those as charitable donations in her taxes. Um, it, so so those those kinds of actions uh, are are pretty pretty consistently made. Um, the self-sacrifice at the end is set up from the beginning um, in the sense that the, you know, in the end, what 
was supposed to kill him was diving in front of a bus to rescue a little boy. Um, and we see towards the very beginning of the film that same little boy being given um, a bicycle and by his uh, what seems to be his father and kind of rejoicing in that gift and then, you know, learning to ride the bike and kind of we get we, we see kind of shots of of his little story um, progressing. Um, well, so even, there, even even the uh, the moment in which Karen figures out how to kill a herald, it's because that little boy drives by on his bike and knocks knocks this apple down. But you know. yes. Yes. Um, so, yeah, there's a, that's the, that that organic connection um, between that moment is there. So, when he dives out in front of the bus to rescue that one little boy, it's a little boy that we, in some sense, know. He's a person. He's not. He is for us, the audience, not a little boy in the abstract. He's that little boy in the bicycle we've been seeing um, the whole time. Uh, so that that seems to fit in with something uh, a larger theme in this whole film, which has to do with paying close attention to particular people and finding them worthy of love after you do so. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something about the way that this this story focuses in and on on all of these myriad people who don't appear to be connected at the beginning. Um, but we get to see these little moments of life and through that attention, they cease to be extras. Um, they become, they become persons. Uh, we see that demonstrated in, um, our baker's life when, you know, she knows the names of the people in her shop and, uh, she cares for them and they care for her. Uh, and there's, there's something about that life that, that Harold also seems to, um, envy in some way, uh, that, that uh, that person who's plugged in, and uh, we shouldn't have be surprised by this uh, because in the replay of an interview about this novel ten years before, um, Eiffel, our, ne- our novelist, informs the interviewer that this novel she's working on is about interconnectedness. So, um, yeah, the theme of sacrifice, I think, is in this novel, in in the story, is enemy intimately connected to the idea of interconnectedness. Um, it's not just sort of an abstract um, uh, laying down your life or giving up something good for some someone else in the abstract, but that those those sacrifices arise from uh, a sense of relatedness that that comes through attention. Mm-hmm. Um, also the Eucharist. Explain that one a little more. Um, okay. So, uh, there's a bunch of artistic references in, uh, in the movie, uh, not least of which that, um, Harold Crick is a man in a dark suit who always has a green apple in front of his face. Oh man. I don't know mm-hmm. how I missed that, David. Yeah. Yeah, he's the son of man. Mm-hmm. Um uh also as uh as Karen Eiffel is explaining to the literature professor that the one who 
the one who knows that he is going to die and yet willingly does, willingly goes and lays down his life, um, is he not the one whose life we should save, immediately cuts to the image of Harold lying in the hospital uh, lying in the hospital bed as uh, the, a hand reaches from the side with a pale circular wafer. Hmm. I hadn't seen that uh, image so, there. I'll have to rewatch that part. So I, you know, I, f- I feel like this, this, th- there's been at least some attempt <laughs> to create a subtle level of symbolism in the film um, that encourages you to to kind of read it metatextually in the way that's actually part of the plot. Mm-hmm. No, I think I'd go for that. Um, uh, Michael, did you have any other thoughts on, on saving the lives of others in, in this film? Just that he doesn't really understand sacrifice until, until he's called upon to do it. Um, he, the whole thing with her giving food away is he wants her to declare that. And then she wouldn't know as much taxes, but he doesn't understand that she doesn't want to pay her taxes. She's paying 78% of her taxes because she doesn't believe in what the other 22% goes to. And she's willing to make that kind of Thorovian sacrifice. Likewise, he won't let her give him a gift, um, in part because the IRS won't allow him to take it. But he doesn't understand a gift. And what is a gift but a minor sacrifice, you know? Um, and so mm-hmm. so it's it's evidence of his character development that he he finally does learn to appreciate and understand sacrifice. Mm-hmm. He learns to understand the gift when he when he gives her a gift and she turns back around and offers to pay for right. it. Mm-hmm. And even where where you, you've already said this, I think, David, where Anna Pascal decided that the way she's going to change the world is not by being a lawyer, but be being a baker, making the world a better place with cookies. Um, and as you said, she gives this food away. Eventually, Harold says that he also wants to make the world a better place. And that means keeping her out of jail. So she needs to claim the taxes. And this is the thing he decides to talk about on their, what he assumes is last night together. Um, he's in bed with her, but now he's giving her instructions on how to keep her out of jail. Because even if he's going to go die, he wants to save her too. Um, th- there's also a, a brief discussion. It, it's not really dwelt on between Penny and Karen, uh, Penny, uh, partway through the movie, gives Karen some information on the nicotine patch because she smokes uh, quite compulsively in the film, and and he and she wants uh, Penny wants Karen to stop smoking, and she says, "Well, it may help. Help what, Penny? Help what? Help write a novel?" And and uh, Penny says, "Well, it might help save your life." And at the very end of the uh, the movie, one of the last scenes we see is is a. Uh, Penny leaving some some stop smoking aids on Karen's desk before she leaves. The the final lines of the film dwell on this kind of interconnectedness that uh, that you've mentioned, David. Um, this the idea that the things which accessorize accessorize our lives are here to save us: watches, sugar cookies, nose plugs, the touch of a loved one. And uh, these aren't things that we tend to think of as, you know, super major important things they're they're everyday common things and yet part of what i think the writer is doing here is showing how these common everyday things are the things which 
which ultimately matter in making lives better. Um, there's a, a very short interview with the writer. His name is Zach Helm, um, where he's talking about very briefly some of the themes in the film. And he says, part of the movie is really about saving lives. There's a series of events that happen in which people are in very small ways saving others. And he says, the little things that we take for granted, the people that we take for granted, are the things which keep us alive. And I feel that is kind of what we're saying. I mean, it's, you know, the father giving his son the helmet uh, at the beginning of the movie as he teaches him how to ride a bike. It's the bus driver's companions caring for her after she's uh, gone through this traumatic experience of hitting Harold. Um, it, it's, it's the friend giving Harold a place to stay when his home is destroyed and Harold giving him this uh, information on space camp for adults at the end of the movie. There's these, all these little things and it's these little interconnected things that make life worth living and, and yeah, I don't know. Well, we've already said it. At the last moment, Karen changes the end of the story so that Harold doesn't die. So Michael, why does she change her mind? And what might the film be suggesting about the moral obligation of authors to the real world? Well, she changes her mind because she doesn't want to kill an actual human being. It was one thing when she was writing novels and killing these characters that she invented. But now that she's had this flesh and blood encounter with this person, she can't, you know, easily kill him, even if that's what the plot of the novel uh, demands. And, and even though... Uh, the professor tells her that he should kill him, and and uh, and Crick himself says, you know, this is how this novel needs to end. This is how my story needs to end. And, and she disagrees because she feels like she has an obligation to him that goes beyond telling a good story. It's it's allowing him to live uh, his own life, and, and and apparently that's what's happening, right? Because by the end of the novel, she's no longer writing the novel. She might be revising it, and yet new things continue to happen. Um, so it, it seems that she has given him back to himself. And I, I think it's worth pointing out. I, I don't know that this would have been a great novel anyway. I'm, I, they, they tell us that. I'm not convinced. Um, but definitely him not dying is a worse ending than him dying. I think they're, they're right about that. And so she voluntarily turns a work that was supposed to be great into a work that's just okay because it's the ethically right thing to do. And this is something that a lot of authors struggle with john updike has a story called um snowing in greenwich village and it's based very closely on something that actually happened to him and his wife and a friend of theirs and she was mad about it and um when it got published she was mad and he decided that it didn't matter if he hurt people by telling their stories in his fiction he owed his primary responsibility to his fiction um which on the one hand is kind of a noble perspective to take and on the other hand, is kind of horrible, right? Like there's something there's yeah. something monstrous about that, and yet it's it's something authors have to do if they're going to base their work at all on real life. Um, and and so at the end, she kind of decides to be the lesser writer in order to be the better human being. And, and there's a there's a motion toward the end of the novel that she's going to go back and rewrite it and make it fit, but I I, I don't find that terribly convincing, personally. Um, and, and so I, th I think she probably has made a decision for ethics and against aesthetics, um, which is, you know, an, an interesting tack to take from a movie. Mm -hmm. There is, again, I said like that, there's that five minute interview with Zach Helm. And uh, I, I've, 
I only saw that about a week ago, that interview. I've never watched it before, but I've been thinking about this film for years. And uh, the, the question of the moral obligation of authors, I think, has been key. So I was kind of delighted when I watched that interview and he says, what's more important, a single life or a great piece of art or literature? That becomes the fundamental question in the movie. And uh, you've said, you know, Hilbert and uh, and the author, they take kind of contrary positions on this. Even, even Harold uh, differs, uh, thinking that he should die. But I mean, the, the author here, I think, comes to realize that, you know, to write is to enter into this ethical dilemma because art has an impact in the real world. It's not just something that's separate from the world. If it was, we wouldn't have, you know, this Christian humanist podcast talking about things like this. Um, I think the writer has an ethical moral obligation to the world outside and not just to herself. Um, and that doesn't mean, I think, that, you know, all literature has to have a moral or that we should avoid tragedy or only have comedies or anything like this. But I do think that there is an obligation for the creator, uh, the author, the the artist, to consider seriously the effect that their work will have on the real world. Will it do something good? Will it save someone's life? Um, David, do you have any thoughts on uh, moral obligations of authors? Well, had he been a fictional character, I think there would have been absolutely no trouble in what she did in her novel. Um as a story told in which um, someone who is otherwise unremarkable uh, has this this sort of late flowering into the dignity of, of being a rounded character and then crowns that moment by laying down their life for someone else. Um, that is tragedy ter- circling back around and becoming something even even grander than comedy, and becoming heroism. Um, in a, it is grand for an individual human being to embrace the character arc of heroic sacrifice. It is not morally wonderful to impose that on another real person. <laughs> Does that does that make sense? Sacrifice arises from the agency of the person who chooses it. Um, if you are imp- if you are standing over someone else saying, "Go ahead, sacrifice," be a hero. right? Although he does choose it, to be fair, and she won't. She, in, he, in some ways, she she won't let him. You know, I guess he still makes the sacrifice. Right. It's just not quite as extreme a sacrifice as uh, as right. it was supposed to be. Yeah, but but he that's the question. The does it have to be in this kind of setting? And it doesn't, because she she can end the novel with him right. saving the life of this child without killing the hero. Well, I mean, could um, could Alfred Hitchcock have filmed the birds without actually strapping live Angry Birds to Tippi Hedren? Probably. Um, I would uh, think so. Could, I hope so. <laughs> you know, and fi- okay, fill in the blanks. I mean, we're talking about a novelist in this film, but um, uh, over the over the years that have played out since this movie came out, and it was known before then, but uh, even more in the in the years since then, um, a, a, an ever growing public recognition recognition of the the awful relationships and conditions and. Uh, 
persons who have prevailed over the live storytelling on film industry. Sure. sure. Although, you know, um, there's no simple answer to that either, David, because, I mean, Tippi Hedren no, not. quit the film industry because of it. I don't think she ever forgave Hitchcock. But another story is uh, Kubrick with uh, uh, Shelley, is Shelley Duvall, right? That's the person I'm thinking of mm. in, in The Shining. Mm-hmm. He tortured that mm-hmm. poor woman, but what a performance mm-hmm. he got out of it. And even she says, uh, I'm glad he did it. <laughs> so, yeah. like there's there's no easy answer to these things. Yeah. I mean, the, the, there is there is that sense of uh, everything is worth it for this story. Um, and that makes a lot of sense if you're the actor who's sacrificing yourself. Um, when you become the one who's sacrificing the others for the sake of the art, um, then you're in <laughs> you're in a you're in a very different place. Um, you know, of course there there are the actors. You know, there's there's the there's always going to be the Vigo Mortensen who you know kicks the helmet, breaks his toe, and channels that into a gripping image, um, or who knocks you know gets one of his teeth knocked out and wants it to and wants someone to just sort of super glow it in place so that the scene can continue. Um, and now you can tell that I've watched hours and hours of Lord of the Rings special features. Um, I mean, there are the, there are those actors. There's the you know there is the um, oh the, the actors who've you know gained unhealthy amounts of weight or lost unhealthy amounts of weight or done all sorts of extreme things to themselves so that they can um, kind of live uh, live a moment uh, on film, but to demand that of another person. Um, that that's that's the point at which you're kind of edging towards um, the Karen Eiffel problem. Right. Although, I mean, again, with with Duvall, I'm not sure saying, oh, I'm going to be mean to you for the next three weeks. Uh, is that OK? Like you, you would you, you couldn't have the <laughs> consent to do that. It would it would ruin yeah. the effect. I mean, I don't know. Kubrick sounds like a real monster and I'll never watch that movie again because it's so scary. But um, the, the fact that she says, yeah, it was worth it. That's that's interesting to me. Hmm. But you you make a a comment there about what Kubrick is like. I mean, that also reminds us that not only is the writer's or or the artist's work impacting other people, in the end it impacts you. And I think um, it's interesting that kind of in the final scenes that we have with Karen, where she's in the professor's office, she's the most put together and least eccentric she's been in the entire film. She's finally comfortable with herself because she couldn't kill someone right she she's made this decision and she's she's also made her own sacrifice in that sense so we don't only change the world when we write we also change ourselves for better or worse well think about what the course of the story has also done to her and the way that she connects to others i mean she writes these intimate character sketches that dig into people's you know thoughts and feelings and and daily routines just it's just just deeply intimate focus on these characters that clearly she cares very much about, but she doesn't care about real people. Um, the way that she treats, you know, Penny, her assistant who's been sent is, is awful. Um, and Penny ends up becoming, you know, looking like a much bigger person for it. Um, but then, uh, the scene of her sort of, uh, slinking around uh, an emergency room and uh, declaring her discontent with the fact that these people are merely suffering, not dying. Can you sh- can you take me to the ones that are dying? 
so that I can get artistic inspiration. Um, the reality she's creating in her novel is the thing that she cares about. She doesn't care about the one with like, you know, actual people in. Um, but the fact that one of her characters builds this bridge between the creative reality that is all to her and the world that she lives in, um, it, it helps pull her out in a way that her narration pulled him out. Mm-hmm. Well, before we wrap things up, is there anything brief in the film that you'd like to bring to our listeners' attention? Uh, Michael? A couple things real quick. Um, number one, we haven't really mentioned the performances, but they are very, very good across the board. And the Dustin Hoffman and uh, Emma Thompson performances, I think, are both just fantastic. Hoffman's good in everything. Thompson's good in everything. I guess it's not a surprise they're good here. But everybody else is, is, is good, too, including Farrell. I think this was one of his first big dramatic roles, and I think he, he does a good job for someone whose major skills in his other movies are yelling and being pompous. <laughs> Number two, um, there's a lot of books in this movie. A lot, a lot, a lot of books. Uh, I didn't recognize the vast majority of them. One I did recognize is when they're watching Emma Thompson on TV, it keeps showing uh, Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue. It's right there next to the television. And I would, you know, I watched this this afternoon and didn't have a whole lot of time to think about it. I would really like to figure out in what sense this is a McIntyrean vision of the world. So um, if only Nathan Gilmore were here to tell us all about uh, this movie's relationship to After Virtue. Alas. <laughs> David, what about you? The uh, the actress who I was absolutely convinced was in The Incredibles but isn't um, is Linda Hunt. So uh, there there's that. Um, you were noticing uh, you were noticing books, Michael. Um, I noticed a movie. Uh, when when he goes to the movies, uh, did, did you happen to recognize the movie he's watching? Yeah, it's uh, The Meaning of Life, Monty Python's yes. Meaning of Life. Monty Python's Meaning of Life. I like there. There's another one. It's like the, this. This film is full of. If you recognize what that art is from, then that itself becomes kind of a cue into, uh, in back into the theme. Um. So I thought that was fun. Uh, I want to know, and maybe one of our listeners knows, whether uh, those horrifying uh, animal documentaries that he's watching (laughs) during the period of time when he's trying to evade the narrator by just not getting off of his couch, um, and he's watching these these horrifying documentaries about animals being eaten – um, and the, the narrators in those documentaries are just bizarrely over the top. I mean, they had to have been made for the purpose, but if they're not, that would be, that would be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for going through this movie with me, guys. It's one that I think is fun to think through, not only for what the film says, but for the wider questions it invites David, I believe you're hosting next time around. So what can our listeners look forward to then? Sure. We're going to be looking at uh, a couple of short Icelandic sagas called Thotter. Um, th- unlike um, the more legendary sagas uh, or even the, the, fam- the long family sagas, which tend to focus on family feuds, um, there are there is this... Uh, 
fun little subgenre of Icelandic saga, which uh, precedes uh, the the rise of the the short story in modern literature, um, and yet bears some uh, some f- uh, I think fitting comparisons to it. So we're going to look at uh, a couple of those next week. Sounds like fun. Thanks for joining us for this week's discussion. If you have any questions or comments, you can let us know by sending an email to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or by visiting our website at www.christianhumanist.org. You can also find us on Twitter at CH Radio Network. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. On behalf of Michael Farmer and David Grubbs, as well as the absent Nathan Gilmore, this is Matthew Block saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.